Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. For podcasting. The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, just after the bottom of the hour, thereabouts, Matt Manassarian, sportsinfosolution.com. It's a former NFL scout, Browns and Saints, uh, both on their payroll, and uh, he will join Trent and I. We'll recap the draft with him uh, coming up at 1135, waiting for Governor Kim Reynolds to join the program. Uh, any moment she will do that, and we will get you to that right on time. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about the last dance. We've got no. so much draft stuff to get to. Um, oh, there's so many directions we can go, Trent, when it comes to that show. It was so good yesterday. So good. Episodes one and two were terrific. I, I think three and four surpassed it in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly see that. It's uh, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Something, wasn't he? A character that we knew a lot about. He had his own 30 for 30. Um. Is he as deep as people are making him out to be, though? What do you mean? You know, people are making out oh, this figure. Oh, he, he dyed his hair. He had oh, yeah. he had he nose rings. Marched to his own drummer. Yeah, and how about Phil Jackson for for Jackson to realize if he was going to get the best out of him, he had to allow him to be Dennis Rodman. I mean, the the trip to Vegas in the middle of the season, the vacation. Right. In the middle of the season. All right, I'll give you 48 hours. And Jordan looked at You're not getting this kid back in 48 hours. He's not coming back. No, not at all. There's no way. So uh, an update. Governor Reynolds' press conference has been moved to 1130 today. Well, that's not good for Matt Menacerian. So let's talk uh, last dance here for the next 10 minutes or so. I will text Matt as we're seeing and see if he can go a little bit early with us here. And uh, see if we can get to the governor then at 11.30. Yeah, I'm all for doing that uh, because there's. Uh, I, I clearly want to speak with him mm-hmm. uh, if we can possibly do that. I wonder why she moved back. Any idea? Doesn't say here. Just uh, just saw that the update on the the Iowa PBS page has the updated time now at 11.30. Gotcha. So one of my, one of my takeaways from the, uh, from the show last night is when uh, Tex Winters, obviously Tex Winters and Doug Collins did not see eye to eye, and Collins wouldn't let him sit on the bench during the games. Uh, he wouldn't uh, allow him to participate in the practice. He had to do nothing but notes as he tried to uh, install the triangle offense, and uh, Doug Collins wasn't going for that in no shape, form, or fashion. He was not going to be... Uh, uh, participating in that offense, so it came to a power struggle, and obviously we know it didn't. It didn't uh, didn't work. And Phil Jackson gets the gig. How about Phil Jackson? Are you, do you maybe maybe I'm, this is lost on some people? Mm-hmm. Trent, he coached the NBA champion in nine out of eleven years, and he left teams. It's and right and left teams did, to do so. You know, the and the only two he didn't win was when Jordan was playing baseball right. in that span. I mean, think about that. Rudy T won the two with the Rockets exactly. in those two seasons. Yep, precisely. 
unthinkable. Nine out of 11 years. I mean, look, we think Belichick's the greatest coach right. of all time, right? In any sport. Different sports, though. Not true. I get it. But, I mean, look what this dude did. You know, as, as I was thinking back at these, him as a, a coach, you know, the, the triangle offense, and they showed a little bit of that last night and Tex Winter and, and him getting the job from Doug Collins, I mean, being on the bench, mm-hmm. how uncomfortable that had oh, to be. Oh, because Collins knew. Yes. Knew the direction that uh-huh. was going to go. And it, another thing that prompted me to, to think a little bit deeper, and I, I didn't have an answer, my wife watching it with me last night said, uh, well, Krauss found this guy. Where did the relationship sour? Where did it go bad? Why didn't You know, why that's didn't a she great want... question. And that's something that... I think we'll learn more about that before it comes... I don't know. Why did it sour? Because this was his dude. This is a guy originally right. tried to bring in. Right. Didn't happen with the, the coach that they had there in the mid-80s. Then brings him in with Colin Staff. It just... Did, was it was it a, an ego thing for Kraus, do you think? Because that that's was... a huge component. You can tell that with Kraus. <laughs> How about Kraus dancing? Oh, on the plane? Yeah, that was good. That was gut-busting. (laughs) Sit down, Jerry. (laughs) Boy, Pippen, he never did like him, did he? No, they they continued just harassing that Although it was was, was two points in the last Sunday, uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. the way they treated him. I didn't get that feel last night. I mean, that that was fun. They were on the plane. Kraus was hammered. Sit down, Jerry. I I think anybody that... There's that guy, and if you're in any team sport, mm-hmm. there's that guy that, now, this is different because he's not part of the team, but I think we all had teammates that was that way. Tried too hard, wanted to be part of the group, mm-hmm. did a little bit too much, and it got annoying, and it felt like that's kind of what Jerry Cross was. He yeah. he wanted to be one of the guys, right. and he wasn't, but he kept trying, and he kept trying to if do he anything he would have stuck to his role, but look, look he, drafted, he drafted Pippen and, uh, and Grant in the same draft. Yeah. I mean, think about that. It's pretty good. I'll say, look at the, the role that they had in the first championships. Unbelievable. Um, Bill Cartwright, Jordan said, when he was talking about the, the triangle offense, I don't want Bill Cartwright with the ball in his hands and the game on the line. Now, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't say those words mm-hmm. on, on the radio. Uh, with the game on the line with five seconds left, I don't want Bill Cartwright with the ball. And he's right. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. But Jordan bought in, yeah. and there had to be that buy-in factor. Did you have a problem? I mean, I remember. I, I forgot all about this. I'd forgotten that the Pistons walked off the floor when they finally vanquished Detroit in the fourth game when Lambeer and Isaiah were the two ringleaders. Mm-hmm. Boy, they just kicked the crap out of Jordan, did they yeah. not? Before they started lifting weights and said, we're not being pushed around anymore. But did you have a problem with that? I think a lot of people, I mean, can you imagine doing that today? Right, right. The way that everybody glad hands. And oh, absolutely. Hugging in the shaking now. That Cancel might not culture? I think of the way people, some people blow up when Fran pulls his teams off the floor exactly. when things are getting chippy. It happened this year against Illinois. Mm-hmm. And he did that before, uh, what was that other game? that? But regardless, it happened and people will freak out about that. I don't. No, I me neither. That was the right move this yeah, year. Yeah, you sure. are the champion. Some people say there needs to be a, a level of respect when somebody dethrones you. That is their competitor. Not mm-hmm. going to sit here and shake hands. Well, yeah, Jordan did it, and he did that after they got beat the right. two previous seasons. But they, but Jordan wasn't the, the defending champ now right. because they showed in the film uh, last night the Celtics apparently did this when Detroit right. finally got by Boston. So maybe this is that was the normal back then. I don't remember that, but maybe it was. You know, one thing I saw brought up was that during that time period, at least a couple years previous, when Boston left the floor, that was also the time that fans would 
make their way onto the floor after you'd clinch a series. That happened a lot in the NBA oh, yeah, yeah. during the 80s. And because of that, well, let's just mm. get out of here. The, the Celtics said, mm-hmm. we're not going to be hanging out with all these Piston fans. We're just going to get off the floor. At this point in the NBA, that was not happening. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe some uh, come up and spack the other way. At least they, the Pistons had something they could say, though it didn't hold a whole lot of weight. Boy, but they my, were my favorite big... part of that was when Jordan said, <laughs> he's talking about Isaiah. Hey, can I yeah. see, can I show you what Isaiah said? Yeah, the documentarian that put this together He's brilliant to do the and you see this happen from time to time when you watch a, watch a documentary. But mm-hmm. the way that he did it and and to keep those moments in there too, not just cut to what they're but the question on screen and then handing him the phone yeah. and you can just see Jordan. He said, "Doesn't matter." Well, there was a moment in episode either one or two that I don't think we spoke about last week when he handed Jordan the iPad or whatever it was when his mom was reading the letter as Michael yeah. Jordan college student was broke. I need stamps. I need 20 bucks. Um, you know, she, he buttered up his mom a little bit. Then he right. went in for the, you know, yes. he tried to close the deal. Right. Uh, that, that was, you know, th- th- it's a terrific series Trent. I like, I saw there's, there's criticism of this. I'd never heard of a guy by the name of Eric Pratt. He writes for the Fort Dodge messenger. Mm-hmm. Apparently he's, he's in sports. You would think that anybody in sports would be just, Eating this up, he's critical of this show so far. Critical. I mean, I looked at his picture. I'd never heard of him. He looks like he's in his 30s. Okay. Maybe, I don't know, late 30s. So this guy was 8, 9, 10, maybe when this is going on. He says he knew everything about it. Come on. Really? Yeah. I I know everything about this. Please, really? Everything about it? Yeah, he was 8. He was 6. I mean, I don't know how old he was, but... Well, even if if he... I don't think you can remember every piece of this. And the way that it's put together, I think that's just... Zagging when everyone's zigging. And I think so too. Well, look at if if that was his if that was his uh, his hope, it worked because we now know who he is. We but, got Matt Montessarian coming up here in okay. uh, just a couple minutes, so let's help some people pay some bills, take a break. Absolutely, good call there, and then we'll get to Governor Reynolds' press conference at eleven thirty. But right now, KXNO and iHeartRadio want to help you with your bills. Text the keyword "aid" to two hundred two hundred right now. It's your chance to win a thousand dollars. Aid to two hundred two hundred. You'll get a confirmation text. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. All right, back to the draft with Matt Menasarian. Sports Info Solutions uh, next. We will get to Governor Kim Reynolds as she's backed up her press conference. We'll join it at 11.30. Miller and Condon till noon. 1460 KXNO. Two situations. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Reminds me of Sunday at noon. Yes, it does. Maybe 11.59. Let's get rolling. Indeed. Matt Manasarian, SportsInfoSolutions.com, joins the program. We recap the draft with him. He was so kind, Matt, to join us uh, in the weeks leading up to that, and we're certainly grateful for for, uh, for doing that for us. Uh, well, overall, Matt, uh, look, let's do, before we get into some of the uh, the players, uh, just your thoughts on on what we saw, the the NFL trying to, I mean, they had to make some adjustments, right? There was going to be uh, that. Uh, there was going to be no fans. We're moving it out of Vegas. Um, just your thoughts on on how that came off over the three days. I thought generally they did a really good job. I was really impressed that uh, you know the production was able to hold it together. I know how hard it is just having a, a Zoom meeting, not talking over each other. So for them to be able to do that with with two networks, really the ESPN and the NFL Network guys all together. 
I'm even not critical of Roger Goodell today. So it was a good weekend for the NFL. Yeah, we were kind of all in the same boat on that one. I thought they did an incredibly good job. It was well run, and it was a, a fun NFL draft. You know, the the first three picks went, I think, according to plan for a lot of different people. There were some movers and shakers. Overall, though, when you look at the first round, it didn't seem like it went pretty chalky. It, it kind of went the way most people assumed. Do you buy into the, the theory out there that was because these guys aren't all together? You don't got 12, 15 scouts inside the war room and, and all these people with all the different opinions. It became a, a little bit easier to go through this draft and to not go wild off the board. You know, I don't really think that's it. I've never been a part of a draft room where the decision makers didn't have complete control. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit like a military sort of mindset where, where you, you speak when spoken to when you're in that sort of a situation. You know, they call it the war room, but um, that's kind of what's going on. So I've, I don't know if that's it. I know there was definitely not any trades that happened in the top ten. I think that might have had something to do with that, of just the difficulty of communication. But for the most part, it just seems like, um, yeah, like you said, the first half of the first round, very chalky, probably because of that lack of, of trading that went on. But then I thought as you got to the second half of the first round and really into the, the remainder of the draft, I thought um, it was it was um, reflective of the lack of communication that's been going on for kind of the last couple of months that I don't think anybody really had a clue where anybody was going to get drafted after a certain point. Matt Manasarian, SportsInfoSolutions.com. Matt, I, uh, I get on one hand, I get the Jordan Love pick to Green Bay. On the other hand, I mean, you look at how fortunate Seattle was with Russell Wilson on his rookie contract as long as he was. Likewise, Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes. The Packers are going to waste at least two, maybe three years of that first contract uh, by keeping Love on the bench, assuming all goes well health-wise for Aaron Rodgers. I get the pick, but don't you have to factor in that rookie contract for quarterbacks and what a benefit it can be if you get the right one? Yeah, um, I think you're right. And just like, I think you're, you're right. I, I was stunned by it immediately. I still don't love it from a Packers perspective. But you get it, right? You understand the value of a backup quarterback. You understand how this worked out with Aaron Rodgers and what you're looking forward to. And the same way with all that, I think you look at the two sides of the contract situation. Uh, on the bad side, yeah, what you're saying is even if love turns out well, you're not going to have that rookie contract window with any sort of quarterback. You're paying your quarterbacks now uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, the, the good side is you do have a very uh, cost-controlled backup. So assuming you, know, you feel good about going into things with him as your backup for the next two years, you've got a rookie contract backup quarterback at least, and you have the ability to keep him around beyond that. You know, it's not just the, the four years that come on his contract. It's the fifth year because he's a first-rounder that you get if, if you want it there, and then the ability to franchise that goes beyond that. So there is value to having a cost-control backup quarterback in your in your quarterback room, especially when you know how much Aaron Rodgers is getting paid. A couple of running backs from the Big Ten. Running back a position that certainly doesn't have the value that it once did. J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State. Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin. Taylor making his way to Indianapolis. Feels like that should be a really good fit. Is that... Is this only the line of thinking that the undervalue portion of running backs, the injury proneness that they are, or was it just overall not a great draft as it pertains to running backs? I think that where it's at in the NFL, and whether it's because of the way things were going and kind of the old school style of evaluation and understanding that running back by committee sometimes works out well. If you have this uh, Shanahan-style zone offense, you don't need to kind of overvalue that position. 
I think that's part of it. Part of it is the analytics and part of the, the devaluation that's gone on with running backs in terms of understanding that it's very difficult to, to create a Super Bowl team that wins because of the running back. Usually you win because of your quarterback. The running back might have good stats to go along with it, but it's rare that they're kind of the centerpiece of a very functional offense that's a, that's a reason why some team is going to win a Super Bowl. So I think unless you get those really special guys, it's hard to give the first-round pick. I think Josh Jacobs was special, and we saw him last till the 20s last year. He had a great rookie season, and he looks like he's going to have a great career. That said, he didn't change the, Ra- the Raiders' fortunes in any sort of remarkable way, just like you've seen with Saquon Barkley on the Giants. It's not, you know, he's mm-hmm. been a great player, but that hasn't made a difference for them as a team. So I think that's why they don't go in the first round. That said, all of a sudden, when you do start getting these guys in the second round, a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who stands out amongst Wisconsin running backs for some of his physical, you know, he's got juice that Ron Dane and these other guys haven't had. J.K. Dobbins in Baltimore is straight up scary for anybody in the AFC North to have him in that in that Lamar Jackson backfield mm. taking over that Ingram role uh, in a while. And then Clyde Edwards-Dillaire on, on the Chiefs. I wouldn't spend a first-round pick on Clyde Edwards-Dillaire, but the, the upside to be able to use him in a similar way to, you know, they've been talking about Westbrook the way he was in Philadelphia. With my background in, as a New Orleans scout, it reminds me of the way we had Sproles and could use him uh, kind of as our third down, split him out, do all kinds of different things, put a lot of pressure on the defense and space. Uh, these guys are all really exciting players, but you're going to have to really be somebody that stands out in both the running game and the receiving and blocking game in, in order to be able to be really valued at, at that number one pick level. I, I'm guessing, Matt, that well, maybe I don't know this, so I'm going to ask you this. Because since you were in the war room uh, in New Orleans and in Cleveland, my, my, my thought is, my theory is that, um, that you guys you know, uh, sit in a corner and kind of be quiet on the first day of the draft, but certainly your, your, look, to, uh, your, your look to, um, you're certainly uh, more important maybe to general managers as the draft gets deeper. How involved are scouts as the draft is going on? I think that's definitely true, and especially in the formulation of your board, right? Most of the work that we're doing is done before the actual draft starts, especially as scouts, right? That's not time to be deciding which player we like better. It's time to be deciding who we're going to pick, if we're going to trade, that kind of stuff. So hopefully you've done a lot of that work ahead of your time, and definitely the GM's not going to have time to look at more than the top 100 players the way most teams do it. Um, If that, you know, in New Orleans, Mickey wasn't even looking at that many players so as you go deeper down the board, you're going to have to rely on the scouts more. It's definitely true. Now, in the actual draft day, I've seen it happen two different ways. In New Orleans, we were all in the room. All the scouts were in the room. And certainly you're right. It gets a little bit more talkative as you get to day three, and you might have three possibilities of who you're going to pick as you're, as you're approaching and, and five minutes are on the clock, whereas on the first day you've had more time. You've already talked about the different contingencies that you're going to do. At that point, there's probably not that much that needs to be said to the, to the individual scouts. Um, now, in Cleveland, we were in a separate room altogether, right? There was only really like five people in the main room, the GM, the owner, the owner and his wife, the owner's wife, the head coach, and, and one of the cap guys. That was it. So they had no communication with us whatsoever, and literally we had no involvement in any of the picks. And, I mean, I think you see that when you see Justin <laughs> Gilbert and Johnny Manziel. Right. Um, that doesn't really work very well when you do it that way. So it, it changes depending on where you are. Um, but the involvement is greater as you get deeper into the draft. But hopefully the communication is already mostly taken care of. So uh, I want to jump back to a couple of our locals and the Vikings. Fifteen picks. It, it every, Ken mentioned earlier in the program, felt like every time uh, on Saturday, uh, coming up in a couple of picks, here comes the Vikings again. 
15 picks. How difficult is it going to be for some of these late-round selections to make the team? And is 15 picks too many for any team? You know, it's going to be very difficult to have 15 picks make the team. But when you start to think about hit rates in the National Football League and in the NFL draft, you realize that with first-round picks, almost half of these guys aren't really going to work out. So uh, when you start to think of it that way, if you bring 15 guys in this year and you have, you know, we're anticipating if and when the season gets going, this is going to be the most injuries that we've ever seen in a, in a mm. training camp because of the, the scale-up from literally doing nothing to the amount that's going to go into the season and trying to scale things up potentially on a quick and timeline. So for all these reasons, I think you want to get lots of guys into camp, lots of guys that have a chance to compete. Um, I think when you see uh, some of the guys they brought in, you see some help up front. It's very difficult in undrafted free agency to fill in enough people to really go too deep at a practice um, with offensive linemen. So I think getting some of these guys is really is really important. And I think it was intelligent what they did this year because even if only, say, 10 of these guys make your team, first of all, that's great. If you have 10 rookies make your team, think about what that does for the salary cap and what, a, what that allows you to do on the other side of things. But um, when you start to, to look at some of the players that they pick, I think just because of the lack of uh, consensus around a lot of the picks, this was the year when you wanted to have four seventh-round picks um, because they're able to get guys. You know, I was Nate Stanley. I'm not betting on Nate Stanley to become a starting-level quarterback in the NFL, but we just talked about having cost-control backups and what that could mean for you. I, I think that's a player that can be a good cost-control backup for you um, as you look forward to that. Um, so, uh, players like that, Kenny Willekes, another good example. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a lot of upside. I think he's got a lot of potential. So um, just because other people weren't on these guys the same way you are, because there's been such a vast differing of information going into the different teams this year, I think it makes sense. They probably picked these guys in the seventh round. They probably had third and fourth round grades on that. Interesting. Matt, we are out of time again. Thank you for what you did for us uh, prior to, and thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Matt Menasarian Sports Info Solutions. Uh, dot com former scout of the browns and the new orleans saints thank you matt thanks guys happy to talk anytime good to talk to you thank you we'll take you up on that all right uh, time out and we come back hopefully governor uh, governor reynolds will join the program we'll find out what's going on uh, as we take you until noon des moines sports station 1460 kxno 106 Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, as we take you until noon. Tomorrow, Restaurant Radio, uh, back on the airwaves. We do it twice weekly, Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have room for two more restaurants on tomorrow's slate. If you would like to join Trent and myself and share your story as to what you're doing, uh, when the green light is given and the doors swing wide open, we want those businesses to still be there. By the way, when I say businesses, doesn't need to be... Um, entirely restaurants right, if you have yeah. a small business come on on and tell us what you've been doing uh this is an infomercial essentially it's three or four minutes you get to share with our audience what you're doing what you're doing takeout wise those type of things because we want your business to survive so you can hire back those people that sadly uh probably um were let go 
in, in a lot of cases. So we're as we're waiting for Kim Reynolds and her press conference. Uh, Ken Miller Show at gmail.com. And you can way. find me, Trent Condon, at gmail.com or on Facebook. Hit us up at the note, and uh, we will get you on. As we anticipate there is news do you think that could be the reason for the delay a little bit here not sure still working through some of the parameters of course we found out on friday farmers markets Mm -hmm. and surgeries that elective surgeries elective yeah are now back on the board and available what does that do for dentists i didn't i didn't hear that part of it do you know i mean can we go get our teeth cleaned again yeah that's a good question you would think that would kind of fall into the line yeah my wife, if you remember, what was that, about two months ago, had surgery on she one She cut leg. your hair, by the way. Oh, she did, yes. <laughs> and it that, doesn't look bad, although you're wearing a hat, so I, maybe. I am. And yeah. I'm almost always wearing a ball cap. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we find out right now. And let's do it. Here's the governor of the state of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. Go ahead and get started with an update on the cases. Uh, today we have 349 new positive cases for a total of 5,868 positive cases. We have 1,668 negative cases for a total of 32,282. Yesterday, we ran a total of 2,061 tests, and a total of 38,150 Iowans have been tested. 2,021 Iowans diagnosed with COVID-19 have recovered for a recovery rate of 34%. I am also very sorry to report that we did have nine additional deaths in Iowa for a total of 127 Iowans who have lost their lives due to this virus. Again, today's deaths are among older and elderly adults. Eight are uh, with known pre-existing conditions and we're still determining uh, on one of them. As we have seen over the past week, we have significantly expanded testing across the state, which allows us to identify and isolate people with the virus, conduct case investigation and tracing, and better understand virus activity in our state and to target our response with speed and accuracy. We have also begun serology testing, which detects COVID-19 antibodies, and this means a person has already had the virus and recovered. Expanding this new type of testing is another tool to understand virus activity, which will help us identify Iowans who test positive for the virus, but were potentially asymptomatic. Expanding testing is a significant advantage that we have in Iowa. Many states don't yet have the capacity to test more of their citizens. Currently, on a per capita basis, one in every 82 Iowans have been tested for COVID-19. And soon we'll continue to be able to expand our testing uh, for up to 3,000 more Iowans a day um, once all of the test sites are open and at full capacity. And that's on top of what we'll be able to do uh, that we're already doing. Testing, as I said, is another tool that allows us to make evidence-based decisions about how to mitigate and manage the virus with precision. Whether at a a macro level or down to a specific county, community, or zip code. With the reality is that we can't stop the virus, that it will remain in our communities until a vaccine is available. Instead, we must learn to live with COVID virus activity without letting it govern our lives. Like people in every state in America and countries across the world, Iowans have made significant changes in their daily lives to protect their health and the health of others. And I know it's not been easy, but staying home as much as possible, leaving only for essential errands, social distancing, careful hygiene, and isolating when sick has made a real difference. 
every Iowan has a personal responsibility to do their part, and these steps must and will continue to keep us on a healthy path going forward. As governor, I had the responsibility to implement significant mitigation measures to protect Iowans during an unprecedented time, which included uh, closing some businesses, suspending elective procedures, uh, as well as many other things, all in an effort to slow the spread of the virus, preserve critical health care resources, and prevent overwhelming our hospital systems. However, this level of mitigation is not sustainable for the long term, long term, and it has unintended consequences for Iowa families. So we must, we must gradually shift from an aggressive mitigation strategy to focusing on containing and managing virus activity for the long term in a way that allows us to safely and responsibly balance the health of our people and the health of our economy. I believe that if Iowans continue working together as we have the last few months, we can protect lives and secure livelihoods at the same time. As you have seen from the data that we provide daily and what's posted online, Iowa has specific locations where virus activity is widespread, and we have areas where virus activity is sporadic and other locations where there is no activity at all. At all. Knowing this, we can take a targeted approach to loosening restrictions on businesses and counties where there is no virus activity or where virus activity has been consistently low, low and shown a downward trend. Effective May 1st, in 77 counties, the following businesses can choose to reopen must, but must comply with certain restrictions. Restaurants, fitness centers, retail, and retail stores previously closed may reopen at 50% of normal operating capacity. Enclosed malls may reopen at 50% capacity, but play areas and common seating areas, including food court dining, must remain closed. Restaurants and food courts may operate on a carryout basis. Additionally, social, community, recreational, and leisure and sporting events will continue to be limited to 10 people. But recognizing the significant constitutional liberties involved, I am lifting the limits on spiritual and religious gatherings. In all cases, businesses and churches approved for reopening must also adhere to social distancing, hygiene, public health measures, and business guidelines from the Department of Public Health to, of course, reduce the risk of transmission of COVID-19. All other existing closures will be extended for the entire state through May 15th. I strongly encourage all vulnerable Iowans, including those with pre-existing conditions and those older than 65 throughout the state, to continue to limit their activities outside of their homes. I know that there are many more Iowans who are eager to know when their communities will begin to reopen, and I want to reassure you that we will continue to monitor all areas of the state on a daily basis for trends in virus activity. As we see downward trends and stabilization in other areas of the state, we will continue to adjust the restrictions accordingly. I want to thank every Iowan for making this possible. Your commitment to doing the right thing to protect your health and the health of others is working. But our work is not done. So I need you to continue to do your part so that together we can slow the spread of the virus and eventually open all businesses in all 99 counties. It may take some time, but it will happen. Continue doing what you're doing to protect yourself and your family, our most vulnerable Iowans and essential workers, and get Iowa back stronger than ever as possible. And so with that, we'll open it up for questions. Governor, um, 
The University of Iowa researchers have provided some uh, Iowa-specific modeling to your office. I'm wondering when you got that uh, modeling and sort of what role that data has played in the decisions that you're announcing today to reopen parts of the economy. So I'm not sure when we received the data. Do you or do you want to take it? Okay. Uh, so the um, the I think the white paper you're referring to, we received I think a copy of that early last week, and specifically that white paper um, looks at publicly available data. It wasn't based on Iowa specific information. That's the third phase of the project, um, so we don't have those results yet. So can so, you tell us what the threshold is here for the 77 counties versus the 22? Yeah. So what we're taking a look at is virus activity in these counties. And what we've seen is the whether they have um, stabilized and started to see a downward trend over the 14 days. So we're looking at new case virus activity, the rate of positivity. We're also taking into account the hospitalization rates as we've been able to monitor through the RMCCC um, data that we get on a daily basis. And we're also taking a look at recovered. Is there anything else? Thank you. I would just reiterate, again, much like other respiratory illnesses or flu, right, we look at a variety of metrics to help us understand how active a virus is. And so that includes the elements that, doc, uh, that Governor Reynolds mentioned, right? So things like hospitalization, case counts, and percent positivity of tests. And again, we're always thinking about the approach to this virus, keeping in mind what we know as we've learned more and as we've acquired new tools to help support public health and clinical activities to address the virus. So um, continuing to be flexible as we get more information and continuing to leverage the increasing resources that we have to be more targeted about that, which includes things like enhanced testing and enhanced contact tracing and um, case investigation. So, Governor, the, the extension of closures until May 15th for those other counties mm -hmm. where I presume there's more virus activity, do you expect those closures to lift at that date as well, or is that something you're still evaluating? Well, as I indicated, we actually can take a look at this, and we are on a daily basis, a weekly basis, so we'll continue to monitor the um, the virus activity in counties throughout the state. I think if you look at the information that's been provided on our website, you can see that the areas are that are closed, that continue to be closed, are areas where we have seen significant increase in the number of cases, um, not only over the last 14 days, but even, even a little bit further than that. So We'll continue to take a look at the data and the uh, various uh, metrics that Dr. Padati uh, spoke about, and then we'll make additional adjustments moving forward. But as we've said all along, we're going to—it's a phased-in approach. We're opening slowly. I mean, we're hoping to bring additional businesses on board as we start to open up. But we'll open up with the businesses that we've just listed. We'll monitor it and see what kind of—you know—how how we can continue to mitigate it if we're able to continue to see the stabilization and the down downward trend, then we can maybe take a look at not only bringing on additional counties, but also potentially adding additional businesses to the list that we've already looked at. So we've extended it for, um, so these will open up May 1st. The extension, the extension of the other closures will go through May 15th, but we're going to continue to evaluate, um, you know, county by county and community by community. And as we're able to do additional testing and the contract, the case investigation and the 
contact tracing. We're learning more all the time, and we're also able to identify if we see maybe a cluster of activity, we can respond rapidly and start to do the investigation and hopefully get in front of it and not see a huge spike in the numbers. And so I think it will also allow us to better manage uh, the virus. And then people, you know, still have to do their part. So if you're sick, you need to stay home. If you're a vulnerable Iowan with underlying conditions, uh, you need to continue to, you know, keep that in mind and, and stay home and not go into areas where you could be exposed to, to the virus. Will the test Iowa results be separated so that uh, Iowans can tell if they're getting their $26 million worth from the enhanced testing? Yeah. And how many state employees will be reassigned to do contact tracing? So I don't know if I have a number uh, to give you right now, but a significant number of DHS, Department of Human Services employees, have been re reassigned to help with some of the contact tracing and some of the um, administration of the uh, test. But Kay, and it, it's not just about testing. That's a huge component of it because as you hear every state across this country and every governor talk about what really, you know, when they're making decisions about reopening their state and adding, you know, bringing businesses back on, testing is a critical component of that. Not only testing, but also the ability to do the contact tracing. And with the assessment piece of Test Iowans, Test Iowa, Iowans actually have an opportunity to be a partner in monitoring their health. So they can go on right now, they take the test. Uh, it's not recommended that they, you know, go ahead and get a test. But if in a week they come in contact with somebody that they found out had COVID, that was tested positive for COVID-19, we would encourage them to go back on to the website, take the assessment. So that, again, we can start to see if we see a cluster over here. If I can get in front of that, we can get in front of that sooner rather than later, we can prevent, hopefully, some of the significant um, peaks that we're seeing with with the the breakout so you know that's and and we'll have that for a year so we're going to have this whole system in place and then we'll see what we do going forward so as we move into the fall as we move into the summer you know i know people are wanting to start you know summer sports or take a look at bringing some of those things online well when we have the data that we have with the expertise uh in the department of public health and we can i think make those decisions based on evidence change with this where local officials would be able to have a say in what happens in their community or does the state continue to have that authority right now the state continues to have that authority but i want to you know continue to work with our local governments i mean we're all in this together and they want to do the same thing that i want to do and all of us want to do and that's to protect the health and safety of iowans especially those more vulnerable but they understand that there's also an economic side of this too i mean when you think about iowans in those 15 you know the main street businesses in those 15 communities that haven't experienced any virus activity whatsoever, you know, they've been shut down based on kind of some statewide um, numbers. And so the more that we're able to drill down and really, you know, target and be specific about where we're seeing the outbreaks, it allows our other communities to open up. And everybody eventually wants to do that. We want to just make sure that we're doing it in a responsible and safe manner. I hope that we're able to do it, you know, by going slow, that we can sustain where we're at, stabilize, and then take a look at 
doing, you know, maybe additional openings or bringing additional businesses on, but it also gives us some time, and we have to be honest about this, if we do see an uptick and we start to see some of the numbers really start to spike, then we're going to have to take a look at maybe dialing back some of those things, too. That's We're hoping that we don't have to go there, but, you know, we learn every day about this virus and how we can manage and mitigate it, so we have to be you know, there has to be an understanding that potentially as a community and as a, as a town, if we see a spike, we might have to take some additional steps uh, to make sure that we're doing this in a responsible manner. So you, as you're getting, what about the idea of the travel? Folks have been concerned about when you open it up regionally like this instead of all at once, mm -hmm. you can have people obviously who've been cooped up for a long time who want to go out to eat or whatever it is. Yeah. They may leave one of these areas where it has a much higher infection spread and then go to a place that mm -hmm. doesn't and unknowingly People have around. to be responsible. You have to practice personal responsibility. And so you'll be able to see where we're seeing some increased activity to a point where we don't feel that we can start to loosen some of the restrictions. And so, you know, I think that they should be mindful of that if you're going to be traveling cross counties. Do you have anything to add to that, Caitlin? Yeah, thank you. I, I think I would also just add, you know, again, when we think about as we've learned more about this virus and as the response has progressed, we take what we know about the virus, which includes that it can be spread person to person, especially when you're in close contact. We take what we know about the people who are at highest risk, so older people and people with underlying conditions, and we take what we know about how to provide and optimize care for Iowans who might need it. And so we still, you know, have seen that the majority of people, right, 80% or more are going to have more of a mild illness, and about 20% are going to have more of a severe illness. And so, um, you know, keeping in mind that um, the recommendations around people who are older or who have underlying conditions are still very important. Those people should still, um, you know, be staying at home and avoiding congregate settings. And also asking people to keep in mind as we think about how public health manages a disease like this, the purpose of tools like case investigation and contact tracing is to work with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis to ask where have you been and what have you been doing and who have you been around and we have those conversations so that we can understand where you were and who else was at risk and it's an example of a place where you know we're incredibly grateful for the partnership of all Iowans in working with public health and of course for the continued partnership of our healthcare providers who continue to work with us um, to provide information about the resources and collaboration that we have to manage illness for our, our Iowans who are at higher risk. So will you, can you give them some kind of final guidance here? If you live in these 22 counties, and so many people are watching your, your briefing right now, if you live in one of those counties, do you recommend not traveling to an area that has been partially reopened, or do you just use your best judgment? Yeah, so the Department of Public Health will be providing additional guidance that's going to help people understand, um, you know, how to approach this. And again, it's going to keep in mind all of the things that we know about this disease. So wanting to take um, an understanding of people who are at high risk, what being in close contact means, if you've been around somebody who's a case or who is sick, again, those are the people that we're going to be asking to stay home 
home, right? Because if we can be targeted about our public health interventions and in asking the people who are either at high risk or who have had an exposure to stay home, you know, then that sort of allows for a little bit more of a specific uh, response effort, right, and a little bit more flexibility. But again, I think we'll be providing additional information on that. And it's another example of a place where every day as we learn more about the virus and, and as we gain additional tools, you know, in our response, we're able to work with public health, with our clinicians, um, and with all Iowans to help provide that guidance and keep everybody as safe and healthy as possible. Governor, I'm curious if you could explain a little bit more about uh, what 50% capacity means for some of these businesses. And I'm also curious, as you're lifting this restriction on uh, religious gatherings while still saying it's not safe to gather socially, mm -hmm. you know, how those can be, uh, mm -hmm. and how people can be safe like, while doing that. Yeah, so the 50% capacity is the 50% capacity of the um, business. And in addition to that, to Dave's question also, I mean, we're asking all of them, we're asking Iowans to continue to social distance. We're asking, we're not removing the restric restriction of gathering socially in groups of more than 10. We're asking the restaurants to social, to, to make sure the tables are at least six feet apart. We're limiting the number of people that can be at a table. We're, and, and the, you know, in visiting with the Restaurant Association, they're doing so many things to make sure that customers have the confidence to come back and to um, eat in their establishment. So they're a partner in this, as well as the other businesses. They know that this is necessary as we start to open back up and dial back up. That these are some of the limitations that we need to put in place to do that so that we can hopefully then watch it, manage it, and if we see continue to see the stabilization, then maybe we'll move into phase two where we can start to open it up just a little bit more. But those are things that we'll be looking at. So it's a phased-in approach as we move through, um, through, through opening Iowa back up and doing it in counties where we're seeing a stabilization and a downward trend for virus activity. Kay, I wanted to go back to a question that you had, too. I don't know if I completed the question, but in addition to having some of our state workforce reassigned to doing the contact tracing. We also have 150 uh, members of the Guard that will be doing the um, uh, case investigation and the contact tracing through the Title 32. So we're very, very appreciative of the resource uh, that we're able to utilize with the Iowa National Guard and, and because it is such a critical component of all of this, and we need to be sure that we're doing it in a timely basis. And as we've tested more and more, our local uh, public health officials have done a phenomenal job, but we've just when you're doubling the capacity uh, of those that are, are that you're testing uh, there's just too much and so this is a way for us to add and to build uh, to build out our ability to do that in a timely manner Ron KWWL Governor good morning thanks for taking my call uh, testing of course as you know is underway at the uh, Tyson plant in Waterloo so but Blackhawk County is the hot spot in the state right now 939 cases this morning about 95 more this posted on the state website that's 16% or one in every six Iowa cases coming out of this area. So you just said the state has the authority. So what is your strategy for Blackhawk County going forward, for example? I mean, will be one of your strike teams be coming yeah. here to Blackhawk County to help yeah. out, or are you just going to leave it to the local officials here? Oh, no, no, no. We've got a strike team. We're already doing that. We'll be setting up a, a Test Iowa site later 
this Wednesday, I think, is when we'll be setting that up. And so this, that is coming to uh, the Waterloo area, and we'll be scheduling those appointments through the Test Iowa, uh, in addition to the other opportunities that Iowans in that area have to uh, call a physician and go through the assessment and get a test. So that would be on top of their normal uh, options that they have to secure or to be tested if they think that they are symptomatic. And so that's in addition to what they're uh, already doing. And then we'll continue. We did, uh, we'll continue to uh, then see if we have to do additional days. Other than one day, we'll take a look at that based on the numbers that we're seeing. Um, Adam, KCRG, go ahead. Yes, Governor, uh, on April 9th, you had pointed to uh, the epi curve and stated that you believed you were seeing a flattening of the curve. Uh, we now see in the epi curve, uh, since you uh, made that statement, the cases and the case uh, symptoms spike in that curve. Uh, do you still see a flattening of the curve happening or have you changed or have any, any less confidence or more confidence in your data? And what has changed to, to give you the confidence now that the data that you're looking at uh, is accurate? Thank you for that question. I'm gonna have Dr. Padati. Yeah, so I think you're um, you're highlighting a couple of great ways that we're able to look at information over time. We're able to understand how um, trends can change, um, and it's helpful to look at these things not just on a statewide level, but at a, a more you know maybe regional or community or county level, right? And so I think that what Iowa has seen with our trend in cases over time is similar to what many states have seen um, in terms of the activity and where we start to see as we're expanding testing resources, we're able to identify additional cases, and we're able to implement control measures in a more targeted way. And so we continue to follow that information every day. It continues to be impacted by things like new resources and new tools that we're implementing all the time as part of this public health response. And it's an important thing for us to follow. It's one of the many things that we follow to understand trends and what's going on. And because we're adding new tools and resources all the time, we're increasingly able to look at that quicker and at a, a more local level so that when we do notice something that may be driving a particular increase, whether it's associated with a long-term care setting, a particular community or household, um, or other sort of congregate situation, we're able to provide targeted resources um, and support to public health and, and clinicians and the communities in those areas. All right, the uh, computer's going to kick us off in about 40 seconds, so that's probably a good place to end it. That was Governor Kim Reynolds' press conference, all but uh, 22 of the counties. Polk County still closed till mm-hmm. the 15th. Uh, Story County open on May 1st. Warren County open on May 1st. Um, those are the two I recall anyways. So basically the population bases are the ones that still are going to need a little bit longer, but... Things are starting to open back up, depending on what side you're looking at. You can look at it as a positive, could look at it as a negative. But Leave that, that is up to you. Yes, that Absolutely. is that is up for uh, people's debate and what they're going to do. So Everybody's different. Yes. Finding out more. That's a good Indeed. thing. All right, tomorrow on the program, Zubin Mahente will be here. We're doing Restaurant Radio. We actually have the Iowa Restaurant Association rebooked to come on tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They'll lead it off. Uh, we're going to spend significant time with them. Um, you know, the... Uh, capacity down to 50 percent in restaurants what that'll do i look forward to that in restaurant radio uh we will do i think we're gonna do the green bay packers we're gonna spread out the four local teams we'll do the packers tomorrow uh with dave sinekin miller and condon thanks for being with us murph and andy next there at two the fanatics at four morning rush tomorrow at six have a great day